sitting in the back row of the movies there, getting us underway for the movie hour. Richard Dale and good morning to Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard. It's good to be back again. Yeah, it's good to have you yes. back. How was it with Tom last week? Uh, it was a little sprawling, but we got through all the releases. It, uh, <laughs> yes, that's nice you, weren't, you weren't short of an opinion or two between you, were you? No, I, I think that uh, <laughs> opinions were in uh, abundant supply, <laughs> yes. and uh, nice to have someone in the manner of Roger Corman to sort of rein me in from time to time. <laughs> Great. And uh, sitting in the back row of the movies, that's exactly where I was last night at the Annick Playhouse, watching Harry Potter. And your th well, do you well, want to? We, well, we'll come to it, shall we, when we get to number one? Well, do you want to tease it up? Um, yeah, I'm sort of almost agreeing with Tom's view on it, actually. Okay. for different reasons. All right. So, that, uh, that's a good tease. Uh, there's a good tease for you. Uh, of course, Harry Potter dominating uh, Annick Playhouse this week. Mm -hmm. It's going to be on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday at 3.30. No escape. And also a week on a Monday at 2.30. So plenty of chances to go see it. Mm hmm Bit of a bit more of a mixed bunch at Berwick. So, do you want to give us some views on one or two of them? Yeah, just let's yes. let's canter through yep. them. And I'll half price, half price Monday, two pounds fifty for Attack the Block, which is very good. I don't think it's a first-rate horror comedy in the manner of American Werewolf, which we'll talk about later. But it's a good debut effort from Joe Cornish. Right, Tuesday, uh, two thirty and seven thirty for Green Lantern, which is a bit rubbish, and it's not Martin Campbell's finest hour as a director. Right, 2.30 Wednesday and Thursday, it's going to be Rango. Gore Verbinski's best film, not that that's saying much. Right, Wednesday evening, 8 o'clock, is Something Borrowed. Um, yet another Kate Hudson vehicle, it's not terrible, it's just a bit disposable. Right, and Thursday evening at 7 o'clock is Honey 2. Um, which is the sequel to Honey, which launched the career of Jessica Alba. Like a lot of sequels, this doesn't have her in it and it's, it's unnecessary, but probably alright in a very trashy way. So, a bit of a mixed bunch, all in all. It usually is, Richard. Yes. The box office numbers, Annick, is 01665 510785. Morting's 01289 330999. I should also say Harry Potter's on tonight, but if it's anything like last night, it may already be sold out. So, do phone and do book, because it was... There wasn't an inch to spare in the, uh, in the auditorium last night. That's which good. is good. Good for the playhouse. Yeah. Shall we look at the top ten? Why not? Right. Number ten. I've been away for a while. I'm forgetting some of these films. The Tree of Life. Which is the Terence Malick film. When uh, Tom was standing in for you last week, he said he'd been to see it twice, and the second time he'd loved it a lot more. I don't think it's Malick's finest work uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I think that the dinosaur sequence in it is a pretentious mistake, but it's nice to see something in the cinemas that is intelligent and wanting to tackle metaphysics, albeit in a deeply flawed way. And the special effects by Doug Trumbull are very good. That's good. I'm going to let you say number nine. Uh, Zindaji Nama Leji Dabara, which is a Bollywood film, uh, which is essentially the hangover in Spain, but it may be slightly more fun than that. Right, okay. Uh, good reviews for the next one, number eight, Beginners. Which was last week's film of the week, and neither Tom or myself thought that this was perfect. He also went to see it the day before it was released, so lucky him. I don't. Th if you're not a fan of the quirkier end of independent cinema, things like Little Miss Sunshine, I think you are going to struggle to sit through it, but there's great performances by Christopher Plummer and Ewan McGregor, who was previously in Roman Polanski's The Ghost Writer, which was a really underrated film from last year. It's a very even-handed treatment of sexuality. I mean, there are comparisons with Tim Burton's Big Fish, so if you love Big Fish, which I do, then you'll really like this. Right. Number seven, another one with very good reviews, The Guard. Now, that's an Irish cop movie starring <gasps> Brendan Gleeson, but it actually doesn't open on 
mainland UK till August the 19th. At the moment, it's taking all that money solely in Northern Ireland. Gosh. And we'll have to wait, so like I say, for a couple more weeks. So it's probably going to be a big hit. It may well be. I mean, I, I would say if you if you need your Brendan Gleeson fix, go and watch either Green Zone or In Bruges, because he's brilliant in both yeah. of those. All right, number six, Kung Fu Panda 2. Which is okay. It, it didn't need to be in 3D. It's definitely taken enough money for there to be a third one if they so wish. Right. It's your favourite film at number five, Transformers. It's still hideous, but I'm happy that it's starting to slip down the chart <laughs> after only three weeks. <laughs> right. no, I, I've, I've already vented my spleen about yes. Transformers 3, so no. Indeed. Right. Number four is Bridesmaids. Which isn't the comic masterpiece that a lot of people say it is. I could have done without a lot of the gross-out humour, but I'm glad that compared to some of the other releases, it's still taking money, and it is funny in places. Right. Number three, Horrible Bosses. Which isn't as funny as it needs to be. It is. Do you remember that uh, Jane Fonda comedy, Nine to Five? Yes, I do, 80s? yes. Well, yeah, imagine that with slightly bawdier jokes and without the great comic timing of Jane Fonda and Dolly Parton, who's actually a half-decent actress. Um, yeah, so it, it doesn't have the strength of its convictions. I think that... When I talked about last week, I compared it to 40 Days and 40 Nights because there is a sort of molestation joke in it about halfway through, which, if you've seen 40 Days and 40 Nights, that doesn't work at all, and it's much the same with this. Okay, number two, I guess, another of the summer blockbusters, Cars 2. <laughs> which is a rare disappointment from Pixar. I mean, they have been rather hit and miss over the years because I was never a fan of The Incredibles or Ratatouille and the first Cars was kind of all style and no content but I sort of let it go because it was very well beautifully designed. The big problem with Cars 2 is not that it's terrible because there are like all Pixar films there's a, there's a certain standard of things in them so young people will still enjoy it um, but it feels like they made it for themselves rather than the audience and if they keep doing that it's a slippery slope and they might just start going down the DreamWorks route so I don't doubt if you've got young children and you've got nothing to do with them over this weekend, take them to see Cars 2, they'll enjoy it, but they won't remember it in the way that they remembered Toy Story 1, 2, or even 3. And at number one... Over to you. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. I've got to say, first of all, go see the film. You've absolutely got to go see it, particularly if you followed the books and the films through. Um, you can't not go and see it. I was going to say, do I have an excuse because yes. I've only yeah. seen up to the third there's one? Definitely, uh, there's definitely a rites of passage in it. And I think um, the audience last night probably felt they, that it was a rites of passage at the end of it. Yeah, and, and that's uh, absolutely fine. And there was a degree of jubilation that we'd got to the end of the series. <laughs> Um, visuals are spectacular. They are out of this world. And if it's not getting a, a nomination for Best Cinematography at the end of the year, I would be amazed. It's brilliantly filmed and it looks beautiful on screen. And it kept me thinking, what a good venue Annick Playhouse is because of the size and the dynamics of the screen. Yes, they, so, they do have a very good projectionist yes. as well. Yeah, so that came across really well. Um, and Helena Bonham Carter was worth the admission price all by herself. <laughs> she and uh, we enjoyed that a lot. That said, um, it didn't quite work for me, I've got to say, and I have to agree with Tom. I went in wanting to really love it and came out thinking it probably wasn't the best in the series. In fact, thinking about it, it was probably the worst in the series. But, no, uh, no, no, uh, I wouldn't go so far. So let, let, let me give my, my yes, view. Yes, all right, I'm sorry. Um, that was very rude of me. So where I will disagree with Tom, who's, if I s summarise what he said last week, was that the director had made the best job of a bad book. Um, I actually thought there was nothing wrong with the book. It was just a very difficult book to film, and I think the director did a very bad job of it. Right. Now, J.K. Rowling has written some long, sprawling books, and they've 
the films have worked because the directors have kept to the spirit of the book but have then liberally chopped out large chunks of narrative so that they could work on the characterisation. What we appear to have done here was to slavishly follow the book, allegedly because there was a lot in it that had to be told, and certainly there are a lot of loose ends to tie up at the end of the Potter series. But in doing so, they produced two parts, which were overly long in in total. Uh, There was no focus on characterisation at all. It was all action, action, action. The few bits of light relief they did have the subtlety of a sledgehammer behind them. Um, And the bit that I think when we were talking about it two, three weeks ago, I said I wasn't quite sure how he would manage to film the end and make it work on film. And it was absolutely awful. Now, I'm not going to give away uh, what the ending piece is, but it was, again, it was meant to be a lighter piece to the end of the series and it had the subtlety of a sledgehammer about it. So, at the end of it, whilst it was beautifully visually and it was a great rites of passage film that everybody should go and see um, and some of the acting was really, really good, uh, I've got to say the overall feeling was one of disappointment. It didn't have the lightness of touch that I think the particularly 4, 5 and 6 had with them and it failed to get the balance, uh, which I think Rowling brings out so well in her books, uh, between that sort of the, the very dark, sinister bit and the and the lighter bits. And it was just a bit too dark for me. So uh, seven out of ten, I would say, not the greatest film I've been to see. Okay, I think that's a very balanced review. And obviously, yes. I, cause like I said, I've only seen the first three. The only point I was going to make was about um, the first two, because I think yeah. you, you, but you, no. I think you, you've done a very fair yes. I think I don't have any problem with people going to see it. I'm glad that a lot of more people are going to see it in 2D than in 3D because anything, yes. anything that prevents money going to Michael Bay is an inherently good thing. Yeah. And I'm just uh, I'm disappointed on your behalf. Yes. I have to say uh, it would not work on small screen to the spectacular effect that you get on a large screen. So do go see it in a cinema. Don't wait for it on television. Yeah. Absolutely don't. One other thought, um, you know, when you select the actors at 11, you're not quite sure what's going to come out the other end at 18 or 19. Yes. I have a funny feeling Rupert Grint isn't going to be uh, a mover and shaker in the world, in the movie world in the years to come. Well, uh, it wasn't a great performance. Let's see how he does, because yes. the others... I mean, because Daniel Radcliffe, I'm excited about, because he's going to be in the new version of The Woman in Black, which is yes. the latest Hammer production. Yeah. So... I mean, he certainly seems to have cemented himself. Yeah. The others, I think we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, my views. Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. Right, shall we uh, talk about the cult classic, then? I think we should. Do you want to play the trailer first, or shall I cue I things up? I think that's a good way to do it. Keep up the moors. Stick to the roads. You the best of luck. Thanks for the ride, sir. Uh, You're a lovely sheep. Northern England first. Italy later. Right. Excuse me. Was that that star on the wall for? Did you hear that? Listen. It's circling us. No one brought them here. No one wanted them here. Sounds far away. Not far enough. Come on. See God's hands now. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. Stay on the road. Clear of the moors. Fantastic. And isn't Brian Glover great? He is a wonderful guy, yeah. Um, not a bad playwright, actually, either. Yes. So, we are, of course, talking about An American Werewolf in London. 1981 horror comedy considered by many to be the greatest horror comedy of all time. Directed by John Landis, who, you know, Kentucky Fried Movie, National Lampoon's Animal House, which we both like. Yeah. Prior to this, he did The Booze Brothers. We also, uh, if you've been following the cult film slot for a long time, we talked about his cult comedy Into the Night uh, back in January, so check the back podcast for that. This had been a pet project of his because he'd written the screenplay when he was 19 years old uh, while he was on the set of a film called Kelly's Heroes which is a war film starring Clint Eastwood made in the early 70s. Another brilliant film. Yeah, that is actually very good and uh, the story goes that they were filming in well, what's now the former Yugoslavia and they witnessed a gypsy burial where the body of the you know, the cadaver in question was buried standing up and John Landis asked well why are you burying him standing up and the gypsy said because we don't want him to get up and walk around. <laughs> and so that that started Landis thinking about you know, how would we react if the dead started getting yeah. up and walking around us and he would and as a result of making this film he would later be employed as the director of Michael Jackson's thriller video which if you've seen the long version goes on for about 20 minutes yes. but it is you no know, kind of taking the American werewolf aesthetic and doing a zombie film with it shot in London Surrey and Wales on a budget of about 10 million dollars and worldwide, it made about three times as much as that, but it took that money very, very slowly. It was one of yeah. those films that there was a big rush in the the early release to get it out first because it was competing with a film by Joe Dante called The Howling, which had very similar special effects. And I think yeah. The Howling opened in America first, but American Werewolf beat it in the opening in England, and then it sort of gained a cult following yeah. right in the run-up to Christmas. So the plot summary is two American backpackers, one of them's called David, played by David Norton, the other one's called Jack, played by Griffin Dunn. They are backpacking across the Yorkshire Moors. We see them at the start of the film uh, turning up in the back of a truckload of sheep, and they are coming along a pub to a pub called the Slaughtered Lamb, which is what you heard in the trailer just there, where they meet the locals, and the locals warn them to stay on the road, keep clear of the moors, and Brian Glover has that wonderful speech of, beware the moon, lads, beware the moon. <laughs> so, but uh, having you know, been thrown out of the pub because they can't stay there, they decide, they ignore their advice thinking, oh, it's just nonsense, and what's that pentangle on the wall all about? And uh, they get lost on the moors where they are attacked by a huge, terrifying beast that it turns out is a werewolf. Jack is killed, David is wounded, and the wolf gets shot by the locals who eventually pluck up the courage to go out and find it. David wakes up in a London hospital where he is being looked after by Jenny Agatha, and who wouldn't want that? Indeed, yes. And, uh, and he keeps having these very unusual, increasingly sinister dreams, because it turns out that maybe he might be turning into a werewolf oh. himself. Oh! Yes. So, that's... Lots a, of dramatic effect here in the studio yes. today. <laughs> We're doing this in old-fashioned <laughs> ghost house stuff. So, um, brief history of sort of horror comedies. The convention did exist to doing sort of horror and comedy together before the early 80s, but by and large, they were mostly ropey, nuts-and-bolts parodies of horror conventions. I mean, you remember... Do you remember the Abbott, Abbott and Costello? Yes. Yeah, who's on yeah. first? Yeah. Well, they did a whole series of films like Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein or meets Dracula, where basically they would turn up at a haunted house yeah. and they'd meet, say, Lon Chaney or Bella Lugosi and so forth, and they would spend you no know, ninety minutes doing their shtick and poking fun at how kind of creaky and rubbish that character was. I mean, there were occasional little scary bits in it, but in general, it was a comedy vehicle with horror yeah. trappings. Or alternatively, you can look at. 
exploitation films like the original version of Little Shop of Horrors, which was directed by Roger Corman and famously shot in three days. <laughs> and that's, you know, if you've yeah. seen the 80s version of Little Shop of Horrors with Rick Moranis in it, it's a much more, like I say, ropey affair, but it's mm. about taking horror trappings and playing them for laughs. In 1981, however, you get two films very differently, but they completely changed the face of horror comedy. And one of them's The Evil Dead, Sam Raimi's classic shocker. Sam Raimi, of course, made the Spider-Man films, uh, which was so scary that it was actually put on the video nasties list. They thought it was a film that would potentially deprave and corrupt a significant proportion of the audience, when in fact it is just a great fact. No, yeah. he described it as a Three Stooges film with blood and guts standing in for custard pies. <laughs> so you have that film on the one hand, and on the, on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have American Werewolf in London, which is still John Landis's best film. I mean, I really like his work in general, and actually his last film, Burke and Hare, which was a sort of new version of an Ealing comedy, was very, very good, was really good fun. Um, Landis had a deep love of horror, and particularly gothic horror, and he was no stranger to the idea of putting horror and gags together, because yeah. prior to making all those films that we'd mentioned, he'd started off with his directorial debut called Schlock, which was a no-budget, goofy spoof of all those Missing Link B-movies about, no apes want, no, the missing link between apes and man. And the thing that motivated to make this film is that he loved old monster B-movies, except for the fact that they, you know, because he thought they'd be, they were fairly well scripted and fairly well directed, and then you'd have to cut to the monster, and the monster would always be disappointing, not because of, you no know, trying, but because the, there was no money to make them convincing when we were talking about yeah. The Thing. It was the, the original version of The Thing from Another World. It's a guy with a blob of baker foil and plastic on yes. his head. And baker foil has a lot to answer for. <laughs> it does, yes. Why couldn't they just stick to food? So, <laughs> yeah, so Landis wanted to sort of address that. Schlock was the film which introduced him to the makeup artist Rick Baker, yeah. who... Um, Fin and they finally got the chance to make this film together after the combined success of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, both of which were sleeper hits, because unlike nowadays when everything has to be open weekend and it has to take a certain amount of money, otherwise it gets pulled from the cinema on Monday, Animal House took about a month to actually spread across the United States and make its money back, and that's a yep. real example of a comedy which starts off with a niche audience and then becomes completely mainstream, and I think we both like Animal House a lot because of, it is very original, albeit yep. slightly gross. So, in terms of approach to doing horror comedy in terms of how much is scary and how much is funny you have to start with a comparison with evil dead because of the way in which they balance the two i mean evil dead from start to finish it's the idea that something can be simultaneously scary and funny so when you have the sequences in the evil dead of bruce campbell brandishing the chainsaw in that famous shot and no cutting the edge now we get all the sort of the gore and the splatter to make us feel scared or at least shocked i mean yeah. it's all you can sort of distinguish but the deaths are executed in such an inventive and goofy way that we're also slightly laughing even if it's only laughter at being uncomfortable at what we're seeing um whereas werewolf it sort of starts in the manner of the abbott and costellos or maybe even mel brooks's young frankenstein in the yeah. sense that it's a con it's a comedy with horror trappings and then it starts to bring in more horror elements early on and it only becomes simultaneously funny and scary in the last half hour when you have you know, all the car crashes in Piccadilly Circus and uh, the scene in the porno theatre where he's changing into the werewolf while Jack's corpse is talking to him. <laughs> yeah. We'll come on to the special effects of that. Because, I mean, the opening section of it, which you heard a little bit of there when they're walking along the moors, it is almost like Animal House, yeah. although it was written beforehand. Because it's slightly, they're uh, slightly camp. Yeah, it's slightly camp, and because the, they're talking about all their conquests, yes. and which is a you know, classic bawdy Landis thing to do, you know, a little bit of slightly adolescent humour in there yeah. in amidst a really good scare. 
I don't think, however, that the alternation between comedy and horror isn't, is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's a number of good things about it. First of all, it allows Landis to withhold the transformation until the very last half hour of the film. Yeah. So you get an hour of character development where you genuinely believe in, you know, what's happening to David Norton's character. You're really intrigued by all the doctor's investigations. You really want him to get off with Jenny Agatha, <laughs> for want of a better way of putting it. And... It, it is that way of you know, having it's a lovely sort of jaunty comedy and then a massive scare to pull you into the last half hour. It also allows some of the best gags to work. There's a, there's a sequence where uh, David Norton has woken up in a zoo after he's transformed for the first time. And of course, if you know anything about werewolf films, they don't keep their clothes after they've transformed. So he's woken up in a, a gorilla cage, I think, with nothing on. And he hides behind a bush and there's this schoolboy with a, a bunch of balloons saying, he says, boy, come over here. If you come over here, I'll give you two pounds. And the boy comes over and says, who are you? It's like, I'm the famous balloon thief. Why, <laughs> why would the famous balloon thief want to give me two pounds? He comes out and says, well, let me explain, and just steals the kid's balloons and runs away. And it's that kind of thing. If, if it was at the stage of the film where that had to be simultaneously scary, it wouldn't have been half as yeah. funny. And there are all sorts of little bits like that. It also allows some of the best scares to work, because you remember the tube chase when um, David Morton's transformed for the first time and you see the suit running through the, the London tube station just hearing the wolf and then he gets trapped on the escalator. And that is a really brilliantly turned sequence. Yeah. But again, if it was just meant to be funny as well, it wouldn't work half as brilliantly. The, the film in, is a fantastic example of how you pace a horror film, not just because of the fact that it withholds the scare, but because of the fact that every single narrative development feels, you know, it, it feels like all the pieces are fitting together seamlessly and it's not just rushing into the yeah. special effects. I mean, some of the plot does look back to the classic elements of the Wolfman myth. I mean, Jenny Agatha's character, Nurse Price, she is in the most recent version of The Wolfman, which also had effects by Rick Baker, she's the Emily Blunt character. She's the innocent heroine who yeah. just happens to be caught up in the middle of this and starts off as being completely helpless and vulnerable, but actually is the only source of redemption for David Norton's character, in, albeit in this case in a rather tragic way. Some of it, um, of the script, is genuine tension. There's a, obviously the conflict between the locals about whether or not they should go out onto the moor to save them. And there's a sequence later on where the doctor who's taking care of David Norton goes back to the slaughtered lamb and one of the locals confronts him in the in the car park and tells him what's gone on only for brian glover to come out and say that's enough that's <laughs> enough from which we get the fast show sketch of mark williams doing that to the yes. uh, the unsuspecting uh, garage drivers and some of the film i mean is classic bawdy landis so you ha you have the admittedly gratuitous sex scene of um you know jenny agatha and david norton making love to the well, it had to happen it, yes <laughs> it, it had to happen but in quite so much detail i'm not so <laughs> sure and that's set to uh, van morrison's moon dance which is one of the running jokes in the film where every single the, the soundtrack is all pop songs and every single yes. song has the word moon in the title somewhere and we'll play the the end credits track called yep. uh, blue moon uh, once we finish this um there's also the fact that one of the key scenes of the film takes place in a porno theatre. And originally when Landis wrote the script, it was supposed to be a sort of Nickelodeon film that would show 10-minute shorts. But by the time they came to film it, that theatre had closed down and been replaced with, well, a place for niche gentlemen's viewing. So he That's said, a lovely way of putting it. Yes. yes. Well, I'm just aware of the fact that it's half ten in the morning yes, and there might be do. children listening. And, I mean, that also ties in with one of Landis's running gags in all of his films there is a thing called See You Next Wednesday which is like a film within a film yeah. so in most of his films like Trading Places or Animal House it's advertised on posters but in American Wealth it's actually the name of the porn film that David Norton's well is he watching it I'm not yeah. pretty sure we're watching it while he's yes. changing and so yeah. that you get the sort of the uh, but also the uh, to put it one way
We have to talk about the makeup effect. Yes. Sorry about that. Because um, when we discussed the thing a few weeks ago, we said that this is the one aspect of the thing that you have to discuss. And this is doubly the case because of the fact that the, the Academy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Makeup was created specifically to recognise Rick Baker's achievements in this film. And, I mean, there's some argument about whether or not the award was created because the Elephant Man the year earlier didn't get nominated, but suffice yeah. to say, Baker deserved it. And out of including this inaugural win, he's been nominated for that Oscar 11 times and won it seven. That's incredible, that isn't is it? That is a prolific record, yes. and I, think, I, don't, I can't think of anyone else, in, certainly in his field, who's won that many awards yeah. so consistently. And actually, he won it again last year for The Wolfman. I mean, which is yeah. the best thing about that. I mean, I, sh I think a lot of jobs in movies, you need a lot of patience, but particularly that one. It's yeah. just so long to make anything happen. It is. It's, it, yes. is an, it is a labour of love, as yes. we've discussed a number Actor of times. Actor and makeup artist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, I'm going to come on to the transformation in just a second. The interesting thing about it is that Rick Baker almost didn't do the film because of the fact that production had been delayed with Landis needing to make Animal House and needing yeah. to make the Blues Brothers to get the commercial success and the budget. Rick Baker was originally down to do the effects on the howling which like i said was the rival production held by joe dante who later made gremlins which is a very good sort of kid-friendly yeah. 80s horror film and baker and i was, had signed on to do the howling and landis called him up saying we've got the money now we can go ahead and baker said well actually i'm doing this and landis had a bit of a strop so baker said well i'll give it to one of my assistants and i think it might even have been phil tippett he gave it to and so he stayed as just a consultant on the howling so his name comes up as that yeah. and then he went off to do the effects on werewolf and they are absolutely extraordinary the transformation sequence which is still is still one of the best I've ever seen. It's been called everything from the greatest werewolf transformation all time to the 80s equivalent of the chest burster from Alien. <laughs> and for reasons that will become yeah. clear. I mean, there, there's three fantastic things about it. First of all, you can't see the joins. Even knowing how everything is done, the fact that it's all latex rubber and animatronics yeah. and wigs because of all the hair that sprouts yes. off the chest, you don't focus on where reality ends and the effect begins. I mean, the way that they did it was they had a sort of artificial floor in which David Norton would sit with sort of, no, it would come up to his head or come yeah. up to his arm or so forth. And they'd have dozens of individual parts like the hands or the feet or the ears because you have the, the section yeah. of the ears just randomly elongate. And of course the head, which is actually slightly asymmetrical because of the way the jaw moves out. And You'd have so David Norton sitting underneath his fourth floor for about four or five hours at a time while the puppeteers would move stuff around him and glue different bits of yeah. latex on his face. There's a funny story that um, when David Norton would be in this situation and because it would take a while to get him set up for every little shot, the crew would often dance around singing, I'm a werewolf, you're a werewolf, do you want to be a werewolf too? <laughs> because David Norton used to work for Dr. Pepper and apparently yeah. that was a play on their old slogan. The second thing about the transformation sequence is how it's shot. I mean, Landis had a complaint about old monster movies like i say that when you got to the revelation of the monster it was always disappointing and in the 30s version of the wolfman it was particularly the case because the transformation effectively consisted of a guy sitting in a chair and then it would sort of do a time lapse and he'd randomly grow more hair and he'd stand up so he would look like someone who just hadn't shaved for six months rather than anything more threatening so what landis said i want to break the mold i want to show it from every conceivable angle and i want to shoot it in bright interior light so that you see absolutely everything and boy do you see everything <laughs> Because yes. the sequence of him falling on his back, so you can see you know, yeah. him from the chest up. It's it's really, it's a, technically accomplished. That's the only way of putting it. But thirdly, and most importantly for the film, even while you're watching these, even while you're being impressed by the effects and the way that the skin sort of creaks and shifts and so forth, you're still focused on the pain of the character. It's it is, it is 
both funny to watch and painful to watch because you can see David Norton's facial expressions as his fingers extend and it's shot in that way so it's, there's a perfect balance in the composition between the extending hand yeah. and David Norton's look of shock and Landis puts in odd lines in it which which bring out the comedy but it's awkward comedy like when he's he's on the floor as his back is starting to arch up and he says I didn't mean to call you a meatloaf Jack <laughs> as if he feels that this is revenge yeah. for the fact that Jack died on the moors and he didn't there's also the makeup of Griffin Dunn's character who the guy who gets killed on the moors and there's a running joke about him him coming back as a corpse as sort of yeah. uh, and every time he comes back he looks so slightly more disheveled <laughs> and slightly more likely to decay and the first time you see it you think oh that's actually quite funny but the other times it, the more that he turns up the more gruesome and grotesque yeah. it becomes and that's an, uh, another way of bringing in the horror to accompany the comedy and the comparison with Alien is quite evident in the transformation scene because of the fact that, as with the chestburster, it's incredibly painful to watch and it's terrifying, but more importantly, you're not just focused on the stuff that's coming out of John Hurt's chest, you're worried about John Hurt himself and the fact that you're cutting towards the, the reactions of the other crew members, including that famous shot of Veronica Cartwright getting covered in blood, which, and there's all sorts of rumours about, was it planned or did she know that was going to happen? Um, in terms of the performances, I think Norton and Griffith Dunn are absolutely fantastic. And Dunn would later turn up as the lead in Martin Scorsese's After Hours, which is like a, a darker, nastier version of Into the Night. It came out around the same time. And the thing that makes him really good in this is that he does, he does the same thing that Bob Hoskins does in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You've seen Roger Rabbit. Oh, yes, yeah, yes. Really yeah, good film. Very good. Again, fantastic special effects. But the reason that that film works is that if Bob Hoskins was con constantly wandering around saying, look, isn't this funny, all these cartoon characters interacting with me, he plays it completely dead-faced like he's seen it all before and it doesn't bother him. It's very, very clever piece of acting. Exactly. And considering he wouldn't know what he was acting to, it was remarkably uh, clever the way he did it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, t it took them something like three years to get all the shots they needed, yeah. so he was very patient as well. And But it's the same thing that Griffin Dunn does, where he doesn't kind of sit around commenting on how fantastic and zany it is to be a corpse. It's just, he's just carrying on as if nothing's yeah. happened, and we have to pick up from there. Jenny Agutter's very good. I mean, I, I like Jenny Agutter as a whole. I'm actually going to re-watch Logan's Run over the next week, because I'm, I'm going to, as a future instalment of this slot. And so we should, yes. yes. And yes. No, obviously the Railway Children, which she's yes. really good in. And she, because uh, isn't she... She was in the original version of the Railway Children, but then doesn't she play the mother in a different version? Yeah, and I, well, it wasn't as good a film full stop, but um, she doesn't come over particularly well in that uh, that version. Is it just because she doesn't get to say, Daddy, my daddy, or whatever it is she says. So yeah, she's very good in this. She does make the best out of what could be a very small part. Yeah. And then we have the cameos from people. I mean, Landis is notorious for putting his best friends in his films, but just to race you with you, Brian Glover, who would later, who is important for me because he'd later play Superintendent Andrews in Alien 3, which is very underrated, and he gets, you know, the best lines in the kind of, you know, he does get to say, beware the moon, in that yeah. oddly threatening, because he has... that lovely accent. It is a fantastic <laughs> accent that he's got, because it is Yorkshire he's originally from. Uh, there is also a cameo appearance by Frank Oz as Miss Piggy, because there's a dream sequence involving the Muppet show in which he turns up in character. There is also a Blink and you'll miss it performance by Rick Mail the year before he did the young ones. Oh, he I didn't remember seeing him. He turns up for literally two seconds in the yeah. pub at the start playing cards and he just has a quick look to camera and then he's gone. Right. And if you're interested, he also turns up in Shock Treatment, which is the, the spiritual sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which came out in the same year. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the, the rest of the film's a bit of a mess, but he's quite good in it. So, to sum up, 
it's a really great horror comedy which manages to do the thing that all horror comedies aspire to which is to be both a full-blooded horror film and very very scary and very very funny i should say if i have a, a reservation it's that I don't think the nightmare sequence with the stormtroopers, I think that's a bit of a mistake, mm -hmm. insofar as I think the film wouldn't have suffered if you'd taken that out, and it is a bit of a, where did that come from, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, and, I, and certainly in terms of its structure, because it does look back to Abbott and Costello and Young Frankenstein, I don't think it's as radical or as shocking as The Evil Dead, but it is on a par with Young Frankenstein because it works as a comedy, it pays tribute to the cliches of a genre while simultaneously sending them up, its visuals are instantly recognisable and it's still John Landis's best film. And I loved it. I have to say it was brilliant. Yeah, Great it's, film. It's, it is wonderful. Nice to bring some happy memories back. Shall we play Blue Moon? Yes, let's, let's finish as the film does. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. The Marcells and Blue Moon. Lovely tune. Very Where did nice. they get the lyrics from? Yes. yes. Goodness knows. Right. Next Saturday, we're going to be starting a little bit earlier. Yes. At half past nine. So uh, do tune in a little bit earlier. Uh, and next week, we are going to be doing... Where's my script here? Because you've changed your mind. <laughs> We're going to be doing Heartless. Yes. Um, Philip Ridley's most recent film... Philip Ridley is a, a really extraordinary horror writer-director. He made, previously made a film called The Passion of Darkly Noon, which features a career best turned by Brendan Fraser before he became sort of stuck in the right. mummy and kid-friendly stuff. Really fantastic um, Faustian horror film. A film I know nothing about, so I'm going to have to do some research before yes, next you will. Saturday. Which will make a change for me. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, do you actually have a script and research, but that would be a bit harsh. <laughs> ooh, ooh, yeah. ooh, no, you're ooh. doing very well, Richard. Yes. It's been good so far. Let's not <laughs> right. spoil our relationship. Yes. Right, let's go on to the new releases, shall we? Uh, let's start with the one that's uh, not going to be your favourite, Zookeeper. Okay, let's get it out of the way. Um, new film by Frank Caracci, who previously made um, The Wedding Singer and The Waterboy and Click, all Adam Sandler comedies, and he's, he's worked prolifically with Adam Sandler, who also has a supporting role in this. The story is that uh, Kevin James, who was in things like I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry and Poor Blart Mall Cop, he's a zookeeper who is thinking about quitting his job because he thinks that the longer he stays as a zookeeper, the less chance he will have of finding someone to settle down with. And the animals in the zoo decide that they don't want him to leave, and so they reveal to James that after all this time they can talk, and they decide to give him tips about how to get a girl and how to settle down and so forth, but it, they're animal-related tips about marking territory and so forth, which kind of gives you an idea of the territory we're in. Out of the recent Adam Sandler stable of offerings, it isn't quite as terrible as it could have been. It's still not funny or particularly original. I mean, whole sections of it do look like they're lifted from Night of the Museum or like someone's taken Dr. Doolittle and put more fart jokes in it. And either the original Rex Harrison version of Dr. Doolittle or the slightly bawdier Eddie Murphy version, which actually isn't that bad. It's not as questionable as Sandler's last comedy, Just Go With It, which was a, an unofficial remake of that uh, Goldie Horn film, Cactus Flower, from the early 70s, and that's quite funny, but Just Go With It was really awful. So it isn't terrible, but Kevin James isn't funny, and it is completely disposable candy floss that'll be gone in a few weeks. Okay, right. Did you expect me to completely trash it? Um... Well, judging by uh, some of the other comments that have been made about it, yes, but anyway. I'm trying to be balanced yes. for once. Good, good. Now, the next film, I, I must admit, when I first read this uh, on the script for this week, I always had some misgivings, but uh, clearly it's got very good reviews, so uh, you can sell it to me, which is The Borrowers, okay. otherwise known as Arietti. Yes. Um, and then I'll tell you in a moment why I've got misgivings, but we shall see. Okay. Um, new film by Studio Ghibli, or Ghibli, who are known colloquially as the Japanese Disney, although arguably in 
compared to the recent output of Disney, they're much better. Um, it's an adaptation of the classic children's story by Mary Norton. Would that have something to do with your reservation? No, it's not actually. Well, I, would, I think they are some of the best books ever written, and yes. I just love them. Um, they were mem classic memories of my childhood. Yeah. Whenever I've seen them adapted for TV, um, they failed dismally. Because when you read that type of creative fiction, you get a picture in your mind, you know, yeah. which is the great thing about books and why you should read books and not watch television. And whoever adapts it is not going to come up with your childhood uh, picture of it. Yeah. Because it's something that's personal to you and you end up being disappointed, or I did anyway. Uh, however well they're made, it wasn't what my childhood picture of it is and because they were such classic books they sort of stick very strongly in my mind and you know i'm probably going to love the film but be very disappointed by the fact it didn't match what i was expecting i think that that's fair enough and i'm obviously there'll be a lot of people out there who've read them i mean i read all because there's how many books are there it's quite a few because yeah. i read up to the borrowers aloft when i was yeah. in primary school and loved it I think yes borrowers aloft is actually the best of the books uh, that i've read so i understand that but i think that what the borrowers this version does is that it takes the mary norton novel and does something interesting with it which granted will depart from whatever preconceptions you may have, but I think it does get yeah. to take on its own identity. So, like I say, adaptation of Mary Norton's story from first-time director uh, Hiromasa Yonebayashi, hope I'm pronouncing that right, with a screenplay by Hayao Miyazaki, who's the guy who directed Spirited Away, so we're already on good territory. The story is, um, it's relocated from, because I think it originally takes place in the English countryside, but this is, in this case it's relocated to Tokyo, and the story is that there are little people called borrowers who live in the house of two old ladies and live by borrowing small items so a little sugar cube here and there some thread stuff that won't be missed yeah. and uh, there's the young daughter in this family of borrowers called arietti who in the english language dub is voiced by saoirse ronan uh, who wants to explore further and she breaks the golden rule of letting herself be seen by a human because uh, a young boy is brought to the is brought to the house after being taken ill and she develops a friendship with him and they go off and have a series of adventures First off, anything by Studio Ghibli or anything with Miyazaki's name on it is worth seeing, particularly if you've got young children, because we're in the yeah. middle of summer blockbuster season where there's lots of subpar digimations around, including Pixar, who are normally very reliable in this field. If you're sick and tired of this, they do do proper stories with proper characters, and even if they don't always live up to your impressions of the books, because, of course, yes. Howl's Moving Castle was based on a novel by Diane Wynne-Jones, who's a Welsh novelist, um, they do have a distinctive identity about them. I think in the end, it's at the lighter end of the Miyazaki, at the, of the Ghibli spectrum, and it doesn't have the darkness of Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke, but if you liked stuff like Ponyo, which was Miyazaki's last film, or The Cat Returns, which was, it was sort of Alice in Wonderland with cats and bits of Wizard of Oz in, that was very good. So if you like those, you'll really enjoy it. Like I say, the English language dub features the voices of Mark Strong and Sir Sharon, and I, unless you've got very young children, I would still recommend going to see it in the Japanese language, because you know, I think it's good to introduce children to subtitles very early on. But the dub is usually very good, because it's a lot yeah. of the dubbing is masterminded by Pixar, because they did the English language dubs of Mononoke and Spirited yeah. Away. And it is unquestionably the film of the week, because any Ghibli film deserves your support. Right. And a rare 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, and quite a number of reviews, so clearly everyone loves him. Right. Also 100% for poetry. Which is a Korean film from Lee Chang-dong, whose last film was Secret Sunshine. This won the Best Screenplay Award at Cannes this year. Um, the story is that there's a woman in her early 60s who's played by Yi jo um, Yoon Jong-hee, I think I'm pronouncing that right. She's uh, working as a cleaner or a house help, and she is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And 
while she's struggling to take care of her errant grandson who's getting into trouble at school for reasons that will become clear. And uh, she decides to enrol in a poetry class to preserve what is left of her mind and help her see life in a new way. And over the course of the film, we discover her relationship with her grandson starts to deteriorate because it turns out in a slightly uncomfortable twist that he has sexually assaulted one of his classmates. Mm. Yeah. Um, this is a film which, because of that and because of its you know, subject matter, because it's a literary subject matter, it could be completely misjudged either by doing the melodramatic stuff of the bucket list by saying, look at these characters, they're ill, they're dying, no, focus on how terrible death is, or in the way that it treats sexual crime and you know, in the way that 40 Days and 40 Nights did. But actually, it's neither of those things. Do you remember us talking about trust a couple of weeks ago? Uh, the David Schwimmer film about um, sort of internet. Um, yes. Yeah, and the fact that it um, the fact that that took a very difficult subject matter and actually did it very sensitively and yeah. you know, approached yeah. it in all the right ways. I think that this does the same thing. It's it's a film about using art and literature in this or in this case poetry not to ignore or escape from the darker aspects yeah. of life, but to to find the brighter parts of them while being conscious of the fact that we're all mortal. I think, you know, it's a bit too long because it's 139 minutes, which is a languorous pace for a film of this, and it is a bit low-tech. But as an overall piece, despite the moments in it which are uncomfortable, it is quite touching, and right. I found the trailer very moving. Yeah. Well, I know Tom Davidson doesn't do uh, long films, so no doubt he will have something to say about that yes, when he's we, on on we, Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> we actually had a, a bit of a meeting of minds over the deer hunter, which is quite rare. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Horrid Henry 3D. Yeah, which is the new film by Nick Moore, who previously filmed um, a film called Wild Child, which was penned by Lucy, daughter of Roald Dahl. Um, do you remember um, there was a Peter Cook sketch in the in the early 90s when he was playing Roald Dahl? It was just like a quick two-minute thing in which it's Roald Dahl sitting in front of a fire in a wheelchair or something. Yeah. And Peter Cook playing him saying, you know, well, people always ask me what I be what made me a success. Well, it all started when I stopped calling myself Ronald and started you know, calling myself Roald, and then he talks about <laughs> dropping the end from yes. all his other words, and, the, and then the, the whole yeah. floor catches on fire. It's quite funny. So this is based on the children's books, and I'm going to read the Rotten Tomatoes synopsis because I think that, that sums it up. After he fails to hand in his homework for the umpteenth time, Henry has no idea that this will set off a chain of events that will see him ally with his arch-enemy, Moody Margaret, and his irritating <laughs> younger brother, per Perfect Peter, as he and the Purple Hand Gang battle corrupt school inspectors, as well as overthrow an evil headmaster in an effort to save the school he has sworn to hate. It's so, so it's not made for us. No, well, no. We're, we're definitely it does us. sound a great, uh, great plot, though. It I does. Can see, uh, I can see children with a sense of imagination loving that. Absolutely. I mean, like, I, like you say, we're not the target audience. This is this has been advertised everywhere as the first British kids' film to be shot in 3D, and I don't think the 3D is necessary. But no, as a as a gimmick of pulling young audiences in, I think that's fine. Um, there's always a risk with live-action adaptations of cartoon characters that you you lose the spirit of the cartoons, yeah. like um, Robert Altman's Popeye, which is Robin Williams' first film, and that... that yeah. <sighs> Sorry, you're going to have to bath yourself in thought <laughs> yes, until the end. Or, I mean, terrible yeah, film. Yeah, I mean, I like Robert Altman, but that's one of his that you sort of overlook because it's not very good. Um, so, and this hasn't, like I see, it hasn't received very good reviews, but you know what? I watched the trailer and I laughed. I actually laughed a lot more at this than I laughed at Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2, and no, great cast of British actors. You've got yeah. you know, Matthew Horne, Dick and Dom, Richard E. Grant playing the evil headmaster and he does that very well. Uh, As Rebecca, he would, yes. yes Rebecca <laughs> Frantz in it, Joe Brand. It's, it's nothing to write home about but it is good, solid, if slightly creaky summer children's entertainment and it is, it, 
I think younger audiences are going to And it's good to see more British films. Exactly. And th this yes. is going to get a wide release because of the 3D. So right. if 3D is good for anything, it means that little yeah. work like this can be brought to the wider attention. Okay. Captain America, the first Avenger. Now, you were really looking forward to this, I remember, when we, because uh, we were previewing this a few weeks ago, and you said you were yes. quite excited for it. Yeah, it was another of those, you know, great, uh, great childhood things that you would read. It was good. You read the Captain America comics? Yes. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. So, um, latest Marvel comic book adaptation following on from Thor earlier this year, directed by Joe Johnston, who's had quite a good career, actually, because he made, um, well, among his stuff, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, uh, Jumanji, Jurassic Park 3, most recently did The Wolfman. That's a good little pedigree, then. Yeah, he also made a film in the early, in the late 80s or early 90s called The Rocketeer, which had Timothy Dalton in. Oh, playing, right. yeah. playing a Nazi spy, I think, and he was yes. very good in that. I mean, I love Timothy Dalton, but... So, he's a, he's a good, solid albeit effects-heavy journeyman director who knows how to sort of come into, yeah. a, in the case of Jurassic Park 3, an existing franchise and put something of his own stamp on it. So the story is that uh, Chris Evans, no, not that Chris Evans, although that <laughs> would be slightly funny, <laughs> yes, he, uh, it? he plays uh, Steve Roberts, who is a weak young man who suffers from asthma. He wants to enlist to fight for his country in World War II, but he's not fit or strong enough. And in desperation, he turns to Dr. Abraham Erskine, who is played by Stanley Tucci, whom I think is fantastic. Uh, Stanley Tucci is a sort of slightly mad scientist in the way of these comic book adaptations who runs an experimental program to create a new breed of super soldier. And so uh, Chris Evans volunteers for the program, which is led by Colonel Phillips, played by your friend Tommy Lee Jones, and he gets turned into Captain America, who starts off as this, just this mascot for the American army who walks around with a shield dressed in spandex, yeah. raising war bonds. But then he is actually called out to go and fight with the troops after the evil Red Skull, played in a scenery tune performance by Hugo Weaving, turns <laughs> up. And uh, in the words of one review which I heard yesterday, he's so bad that he's too bad for the Nazis. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I love Hugo Weaving, yes. and of course he plays Agent Smith in the Matrix film, so he yes. does villains very well. And when I first saw the makeup of this, I was reminded of, um, do you remember Ridley Scott's Legend? The film about this medieval fantasy which had Tim Curry playing the devil in. No, no I, I do remember that. Yeah, it was, a, a 19, it was a thing he made right after Blade Runner, and it was flawed but quite interesting. And the thing about that was that it had Tim Curry playing, you know, the devil, the Dark Lord, I think they called it, yes. in layers and layers of red latex which took about five hours to put on including this massive pair yeah. of bull's horns and uh, apparently tim curry actually injured himself taking all that stuff Gosh. off in the bath the Ooh, other day, that so. sounds painful yeah really nasty yes. but so when i first heard about this i was kind of in two minds because out of all the the kind of the classic comic book characters captain america is quite boring because it's you know it's a broken spandex with a shield and where do you go from there? Because he doesn't have any kind of great superpowers and it's, yeah. he's not as inventive as batman and certainly in the trend for going dark in superhero films, you can't really do a dark origin story of Captain America because it is inherently pulpy. But to give it its due, they seem to have achieved a pretty good compromise between the doing the knowingly ridiculous pulpy origin of the story, but also doing bringing it into the 21st century with a good Marvel sensibility. I mean, there are bits of it which do remind me of Indiana Jones, albeit it doesn't have quite the panache of Spielberg's work and it's a lot more heavy effects heavy than Indiana Jones. And there is a comparison within Joe Johnson's work, not just with The Rocketeer, but with a film he made in 1999 called October Sky, which was a war, which is an old-fashioned wartime melodrama, which was the thing that Jake Gyllenhaal did just before Donnie Darko, so it's quite yeah. significant for his fans. And it was that same old thing of old-fashioned, sentimental, melodramatic, but in a good, honest way. So... I think if you're a fan of Thor, it's slightly more silly and ridiculous than that, but not necessarily in a bad way. And it's trashy and it's slightly pulpy, but you know what? It's all right. 
Right. And I've gone around the script in a really weird order, but I think I've got all of them with a better life to finish with. Yeah, new film by Chris White, who's also had an unusual career, because he started out directing the first American Pie film, and then he made About a Boy, which is the Nick Hornby adaptation uh, yeah. starring Hugh Grant, and uh, most recently he did the second Twilight film. So, right. No, interesting. Some good films. Yeah, interesting visual progression. Um, the story follows uh, a father and a son who have illegally immigrated to the United States from Mexico, and the father works hard by any means to ensure that his son can have the opportunities that he never had, and it, the it's a contrast between the father living in fear of being found out by the authorities because he's working as a gardener, and on the other hand, the son living in an environment where he, because of his well his racial connotations and no, his class connotations because they are part of the, the invisible underclass he is almost expected to fail and there is a sequence in the film in which he almost falls into becoming part of a gang it's been compared to Bicycle Thieves which is um, no, a very famous Italian film from the 1920s about a father-son relationship yeah. involving no, well, thieving bicycles and I don't think it's quite up there with that it's it's also a bit like The Pursuit of Happiness, that Will Smith film from a few years ago, which, which did the sort of thing of a father working relentlessly to support his son. And I think Will Smith's real-life son was in that as well. So it's, it's quite well-worn territory, but the film approaches it with a certain degree of honesty and charm, and there is you do genuinely believe in the character. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's massively remarkable, but it's a well-told story, and Chris Weitz is a pretty good director, so um, if it's showing anywhere near you, you should probably catch it. Good. So a fairly strong clutch this week. It is pretty strong. I mean, you, you've also got quite a good mix, because you've got the blockbuster coming yeah. with smaller efforts and some very good animation. And a couple of um, foreign films. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> I mean, genuinely foreign. Yes, foreign language. Yeah. World cinema. Yes. To use the dignified way of putting it. Indeed, yes. So... Whatever you want to go see, have a good week. Yeah, the film of the week for me is Arietti or The Borrowers, although I don't think the Times is showing it till next week. So out of the rest, I would go for, well, probably Captain America, actually. Yeah, why not? Go and have some fun. Yes. It is the summer holidays. Right, thanks for joining us. Don't forget, 9.30 next week for the movie hour. Yep. And then uh, Daniel will be filling in afterwards with a bit of music through until 11. Taking us to the news, a little bit of Adele. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.